Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The emergency purchase program is going to run at least through the end of March 2022. They'll reinvest that QE debt for an extended period of time, even after the first rate hike. So if you believe, let's just say you believe that we'll get a rate hike from the ECB at some point in this cycle. After that, the ECB will still be reinvesting the debt on its balance sheet that they've been buying over the last year. I want to bring in Alberto Gallo of Algebris on this. Alberto, the ECB is going to be in this market for a long, long time. How does that shape your view on fixed income in Europe? Good morning. Sometimes the most interesting things that come out of central banks are the things they don't talk about. And there's two big questions here. Uh, one is how long are they going to keep going with the emergency purchase program even after the pandemic is over? And it looks like, as you said, that that's going to be with us for a long period of time, even beyond 2022. Um, and the second one is what happens if there's another crisis? Now, uh, interest rates are already negative. Uh, net supply of European government bonds is negative this year. The ECB is buying more than the governments are issuing. So, you know, they've they got to think about something new. And um, that's where, you know, some worrying scenarios come up for investors of very, very strong financial repression, very low yields below inflation, even though inflation is pretty low in Europe. Alberto, I've got to jump in because what you're talking about is so important. Are you saying that we might not have seen the end of this and that something new might be coming? And I'm not saying anytime soon. I just want to understand the kind of something you're thinking about. You're thinking about equities. Surely we've already done everything we can do on the fixed income side. You know, the biggest question here for investors for the next years is whether governments are going to be able to beat secular stagnation. Now, it's it's a moment of celebration in the U.S. with a new presidency. And probably the Biden administration has a shot at this with a lot of fiscal uh, stimulus and infrastructure spending. But if you look at Europe, the recovery plan is still very, very small. And we've got German elections later this year. It's not exactly the year where, you know, the European Union is going to splurge on, on fiscal. Uh, so, you know, the things the ECB doesn't talk about is how are they going to get inflation back up? Uh, how much more fiscal is needed? And also, you know, what's the end game for the PEPP? And it looks like, um, you know, unless you're seeing Germany spending a lot more, which is unlikely this year, it looks like the emergency purchase program is going to be with us uh, for a much longer period of time, which means savers are getting um, returns well below inflation. So, you know, one of the casualties of the pandemic has been the risk-free rate. Uh, it's now very, very deeply negative. And it's going to continue to be like that, uh, especially in Europe. It sounds like a process in search of a theory, Alberto Gallo. What's the underlying theory here? Are they literally making it up in the United States of Europe as they go? Our theory is interest rates at the extreme uh, become counterproductive. So, you know, you've got Argentina with very high interest rates. Uh, in theory, they are supposed to uh, curb inflation, but at some point you have a compounding impact and they become inflationary. Uh, conversely, when you have deeply negative interest rates and they are persistent, uh, 
they create asset bubbles which burst and then create deflation. They keep zombie companies alive, which reduce productivity. So you really need to shake up the system, do reforms, invest in infrastructure, uh, and improve productivity, which the U.S. has a, has a big shot at with this administration. In Europe, uh, in Europe, it's it's much uh, it's a much tougher game to play this year. Meanwhile, Alberto, you have a uh, rather difficult decision as a portfolio manager of whether to just go by the central banks and ignore risk. At a certain point, it makes no fundamental sense for Italian bond yields to be getting lower with respect to uh, German yields as their government basically threatens to fall apart. This is because the ECB has been buying more of their debt. Do you lean into that? as a portfolio manager, or do you say risk matters? We say risk matters. Last year, uh, we were over half in cash in our um, global credit fund before the pandemic hit, uh, and we had a lot of protection on. And, you know, we're getting to a point where um, there is, where the odds are very much skewed against the investors. So you can make two cents if you're right, uh, but if you're wrong, you can lose five or 10. And the BTP example is spot on. So we're trying to preserve the odds to be at least equal or in favor of our investors. So we're, we're not buying BTPs here. We're not buying uh, long dated investment grade debt. Uh, but there are some areas where there's still upside in some of the periphery countries in convertible debt. Uh, in some of the companies which are going to be the companies of the future. So, you know, we're we're pretty cautious, but we still have some upside right. bets on the reopening of the economy. Alberto Smart, thank you so much. Alberto Gala with Algebras Investments here on an ECB uh, looking for a solution. Speaking of hate mail, he loves to send me hate mail on Apple. Michael Holland joins us now, Holland and Company. He's paid a lot of taxes on capital gains over the year. Michael, what do you do with a stock that's a melt up and you've got a tax obligation due? How do you handle that? Well, one of the things you can do is, is choose your favorite university. You had the Lafayette Endowment head on a few minutes ago. Give your appreciated stock to the university of your choice for financial aid for some of the students. How is that? You get the tax write-off and you help uh, education and, and the equalization of opportunity that Jonathan Farrow was just talking about. Well, Michael, I'll let you worry about how to deal uh, with the tax bill. There is a question of how to deal with risk right now and how to even assess it. And I got to say, I was really struck by Seth Klarman this uh, Baupost group, when he wrote in the financial no, a note that was uh, obtained by the Financial Times, with so much stimulus being deployed, trying to figure out if the economy is in recession, is like trying to assess if you had a fever after you just took a large dose of aspirin. He likened the current situation to investors being frogs boiled in water, slowly uh, becoming desensitized to risk. How do you navigate as an investor? Well, Seth Klarman uh, has been uh, brilliantly investing for decades and would never ig ignore what he's saying. I, I think right now, Lisa, I, I'm mindful of uh, where the market's uh, uh, psyche is. And with uh, Janet Yellen uh, pairing up with uh, Jerome Powell right now, I think they are a panacea for people concerned about an overvalued market, that the market could become even more overvalued. Uh, the, the trick will be a year from now when we, I hope we're talking, uh, that, that the, uh, the economy has fulfilled some of the heightened expectations about when the vaccine gets out there. I was uh, interested to see a, a Bloomberg blurb yesterday about Amazon now 
uh, moving in to help out with the distribution of the vaccine, I think we could get some positive surprises rather than negative surprises over the next couple of quarters on the vaccine front. If that happens, uh, I think uh, some of the, uh, uh, the animal spirits in the economy may start to waken up. Forgive me for being so cynical, Michael, but do you think that big tech sees the writing on the wall? I mean, why has Amazon waited so long to come in and talk about this? Why did Twitter wait so long to ban Donald Trump? It all seems a little bit convenient that all of this has happened basically in the month that the incoming administration is coming through. I think your cynicism, John, is is, is well placed, uh, and I think that the, uh, uh, the the people who run these companies uh, have seen uh, where we're, we're going. Uh, and I think there was uh, more than just Netflix yesterday when the uh, stocks like Amazon uh, plowed to the upside dramatically. I think there, there's a new sheriff, and I think it's I think it's going to be I think the the, the, the tech companies are going to have some some comeuppance over the next year, but I think overall things probably are going to be okay. Meanwhile, uh, given your role at State Street uh, and at some of the biggest asset managers over the years, seeing the transformation in that industry, what are you expecting in the years ahead under the Biden administration when it comes to consolidation and asset management into the hands of just a few behemoths? I think so long as the behemoths behave themselves, it's difficult to make uh, a serious uh, political headway um, in, in terms of attacking them. I think the, what's, what's happened, Lisa, over the last decade, is, and particularly the last few years, uh, is a, a dramatic, uh, favorable, dramatically favorable position for the people listening to the call here, uh, watching the call, with respect to, they, they just don't pay very much to have, have their money taken care of. And so the fees continue to, to cascade down. It's a very favorable development. So the behemoths, if they, if they don't manage it right, and we just had Jonathan talk about how the techs are trying to manage right uh, in, a, in a new environment, I think that the big people like State Street and Vanguard and Fidelity will continue to do the same thing. They're smart people running these places, and so long as they keep making it better for all of us as, who are investors, uh, I think they, they reduce the possibility of, of draconian things happening to them. Michael, great to catch up. As always, a real gentleman of Wall Street, Michael Holland. Michael, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. As I said, we've got some European yields moving uh, as well uh, uh, this morning. A lesser negative yield, if you will, in Germany. To distill this sharp distinction, Jane Foley joins us with Rabobank. Jane, I know it is about FX, and we want to get to that, Paul Sweeney and myself. Uh, but what I would <clears throat> really want to focus on uh, here is the yield differential or the guesstimate of future inflation. I went back pre-financial crisis, and the five-year, five-year forward guesstimate of inflation slash interest rates has never been wider. Higher inflation in the U.S., a lesser inflation in Europe. What does that signal to you at Rabobank on foreign exchange? Well, quite simply, it means that the euro is likely to remain well supported against the U.S. dollar. And to be honest, Tom, I think that this is really the crux of the story from 
last spring when we saw that real drop in U.S. real interest rates. And um, there isn't any sign yet that that's going to really reverse. So at the start of the year, we had this bit of a correction in euro dollar. We had a lot of new news and maybe yeah. people just were adjusting their positions. But fundamentally, that story in real interest rates remains unchanged. And, and therefore, it's likely that the dollar is going to remain soft until it does change. This is such a critical question, folks. You know, if you say to me, somebody wrote a 42-page year-end study <laughs> and they got to redo it into 2021. Jane, I'm going to suggest the rewrite's going to come in July. And with that is the humility of the x-axis. Okay, you can say dollar stronger. You can say rates higher in the U.S., but there's the when of it. How hard is it to, to get those two together, the movement of a given idea and also the when of it? Well, you know, I think the markets are already starting to talk about, you know, change in fundamentals. But if we listen to policymakers, if we listen to Powell, for instance, a week or so ago, there doesn't seem to be any real chance that we're going to see fundamentals actually change. When I talk about fundamentals, I'm talking about, you know, what the Fed could potentially do on, on rates. It's going to be a long time before they do something on rates. That's the story they're telling us. And of course, on inflation, now perhaps this is a big market story, I think, for this year. The market's already got a bit more excited on the prospect of U.S. inflation, but inflation prospects in the Eurozone remain very soft. And again, we get back to this story that we've had running for a few years, well before the pandemic story, of the possibility of Japanification in Europe, this, this, this risk that we have years of low growth and low inflation with the ECB not necessarily having the tools to promote inflation. And if that's the case, then real interest rates in, in Europe may remain promoted by this sort of dis disinflationary or deflationary effect. So, Jane, that's kind of where I wanted to go. I mean, as I was listening to Christine Lagarde this morning, it sounded awfully like Fed Chairman uh, Powell in terms of lower for longer here. So where are currency traders placing their bets for the next six to 12 months? Again, I still think it's going to be on the weak dollar story. And again, it's, it's not necessarily related to the nominal uh, yield story. And, and most of these central bankers are still saying more or less the same thing. We saw the Bank of Japan this morning, again, suggesting they could do more if, if conditions need be. Um, lower for longer, uh, that's, the, that's the story for most central banks. But if we look at inflation expectations, it appears that the U.S. has got the head start on, on really being able to promote that. Um, if we were to talk about, you know, the, the, a change in um, the, the inflation outlook from the, the ECB or from the Bank of Japan, are the markets going to think, well, you know what, that's a moot point. They're never going to get to 2%, at least not, you know, for the foreseeable. But in the U.S., the market seems to believe that. And that is perhaps why we have real interest rates, you know, so low in the, in the U.S. And that could stay, the way, stay that way for quite a while. Jane, we, you know, we just obviously had the uh, inauguration yesterday of President Biden here uh, trying to be aggressive on the fiscal stimulus side. How's the FX markets kind of pricing that in? I think they have been, you know, for, for a while, at least since those uh, Georgian uh, uh, runoffs uh, on the 5th of January. Um, clearly, you know, the market is going to be watching the Senate to see how much pushback there is. Clearly, there, there, there needs to be the support of, of some Republicans in the upper house to make sure that deal goes through. We don't know whether or not they're going to get the full 1.9. But, um, you know, the, the market is optimistic that there will be more fiscal spending. We listened to Janet Yellen earlier on in the week. The market is hopeful of that. And I think a lot of that is... It's probably now in the price. Jane Foley, you've got to leave it there. Thank you so much. Jane Foley with Rabobank.
Much to talk about here, and we are now thrilled to bring you on any number of topics. Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard, uh, his service to us in Davos. You know, this is the Davos visit, I guess, this year. Uh, Ken Rogoff as well. Ken, you have written over the years on our fiscal responsibility. How out of whack is our fiscal economics as we enter a new presidency? Well, we're in a wartime situation, and in a situation like this, you do whatever it takes, and you figure out how to pay for it later. Um, I think you know, the thing that's probably most out of whack is we probably need a more robust system of taxes and transfers to deal with inequality. Uh, but in the short term, there's really very little alternative to continuing these deficits as long as the markets will permit it. Well, as long as the markets will permit it, Joe Stiglitz to join us later today. I remember a conversation, Ken, with you with Professor Stiglitz in Davos, where you were in agreement on an optimism to grow our way out of our fiscal difficulties. Are we going to be able to do that with the new potential GDP of America? No, I mean, I think that's not the point at the moment. The pandemic is not over. This is the worst crisis I've seen in my lifetime, I think, since the Great Depression. This is worse than the financial crisis. Uh, and we have to try to have a robust plan for dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, this, is, this is catastrophe relief. This isn't, you know, stimulus yet. I think we have to get there with infrastructure spending and such. And uh, our President Biden has a lot of ideas about that. What, it, what is true is as we emerge from the wartime economy, whenever that is, you can't stay permanently on wartime footing. You can't solve every social problem, the environment, everything simply by running deficits. Uh, at some point, you have to make choices among policies about what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Uh, you probably, as I said, to deal with inequality, need a more robust system of taxes, transfers, providing more government services. And I think that's going to be a tough road, but that's really the direction uh, we need to go. So do you think that Joe Biden will look at it? And, you know, again, what does it mean for him being able to actually push it through? Who knows? I mean, uh, you know, I'm just relieved that we have a president who comports himself with dignity. Uh, yes, Trump was not wrong about everything, but I think really the real issue was the threat to the Constitution, uh, the institutions, international institutions. It's Yes, it's sometimes good to have somebody who comes and breaks things up and shakes things up, but it had gone much too far. And uh, Biden is so level-headed. I thought it was actually a very inspirational speech that he gave yesterday, highlighting at those issues that that's the most important thing the president can do. And I think if you don't have a good system of governance, you will not grow. You were talking about Italy earlier. I mean, Italy certainly struggled with trying to balance all these competing interests, and it's one of the reasons its growth performance hasn't been so great uh, in oh, certainly in recent decades. 
Um, but, Professor, when you look at the spending, where does that spending need to go in the U.S.? Is it infrastructure spending? Is, is it actually Internet you know, infrastructure spending to, to make sure that people have access to the World Wide Web, especially for education? Like, uh, you know, how should the U.S. spend that money? Well, I mean, again, the pandemic is the first thing. Uh, the Gates Foundation's done an estimate. It seems much too low to me. That it would cost $25 billion to do international distribution of the vaccines. Suppose it's $200 billion. That from the Europe and the United States would be money very well spent to try to tame this thing. But yes, I mean, in infrastructure spending, if it's genuinely productive, is spectacularly useful. And I, I think you're right, a broader notion of education. I think the future is not just bricks and mortar education. Right. Online education for children and adults. Ken, you know I've said your Curse of Cash is the bravest book written on economics in a generation. Clearly, Christine Lagarde has read The Curse of Cash. Do you link Bitcoin wholly into criminal activity? And do you consider the new price appreciation of Bitcoin to be speculative? Well, I certainly think I agree that it's speculative. Um, I've been a Bitcoin skeptic, and uh, certainly the price has gone up, but there's sort of an ultimate question of what's the use? Uh, is it just valuable because people think it's valuable? That is a bubble that would blow up. Um, I can see Bitcoin being used in failed states. It's conceivable, you know, it could have some use in a dystopian future. But I think the governments are not going to allow pseudonymous uh, transactions on a big scale. They're just not going to allow it. Uh, the regulation will come in. The government will win. It doesn't matter what the technology is. <clears throat> and so I think, you know, over the long run, if there's not a use, yes, the bubble will, will burst. I hope there's not such a valuable use, but I suppose it's a hedge against dystopia. Would you advise Secretary Yellen at Treasury that the U.S. should be proactive in instituting that regulation which could collapse the price of cryptocurrency? Well, they are. Yeah, yes. I mean, uh, that's, that's just true across the board. It needs to be regulated. Uh, some, some of the perhaps stable coins will, you know, make it through this. But I think, uh, of course, the, every central bank's working on this. So I was, uh, I'm in the G30. We did a report on this. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't say it so crudely as just to say, make the price go down. That's not the purpose. But, uh, you know, you need to uh, have the transactions uh, obey the same kinds of information regulations as everything else. So uh, I think governments are on it. Uh, it's not being used that widely, and I suspect, although the Bitcoin lobbyists have been successful in getting it in some places, that won't last. Uh, Ken Rogov, talk to me about how we can strengthen the financial system from now. I know the G30 has also done quite a lot of work on you know, uh, worrying about solvency, maybe worrying about zombie companies. Are we in a better place now that we thought we would pre-pandemic? Well, as this lingers, I think some of our defenses will weaken. I mean, part of what we did in round one uh, very effectively was the Federal Reserve basically said, I'm going to guarantee 
junk bonds. I'm being just a little bit exaggerating, but they, you know, did virtually go to that. Uh, municipals, they ended up not having to buy very much. The market responded. But I think as things go on, there will be bankruptcies. There will be things. And uh, the, the Treasury is going to step in in some places. The Federal Reserve is not in a position to lose lots of money. And uh, we, we, we could see uh, quite a lot of financial strains as this goes on. That said, a lot of the problems are really at, you know, among low-income small businesses, and they're terrible for the country. They don't necessarily bring down the system uh, quite the way that you know, a full-on banking crisis does. But of course, if people can't pay their rent and they're not paying their rent, eventually you're going to have real estate bankruptcies, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything that, that could be systemic? I mean, uh, of course, in this situation, when you have a shock of this magnitude, there's no telling what direction that's going to move things. I think as long as interest rates stay this low, uh, the government has sort of a lot, a lot of power to deal with things. If at some point, for example, Asia grew much faster for a sustained period and Europe and the United States didn't, then I think eventually that's going to put a lot of stresses on things and interest rates will pick up. And there, you know, interest rates are below long-term trend, even if long-term trend mm. is declining. We've had declines like this before. Uh, they're at least substantially reversed. Eventually, over a long time, that's going to happen. Ken Rogoff, thank you so much for joining us this day after inauguration. He is at Harvard, and I can't say enough about his effort. The curse of cash still very timely. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 